Sometimes a cigar is a big brown dick. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Film Find. Oh boy, we have a big show for you today. Eh, maybe not a big show, but a good show. A good show, nevertheless. My name is Adam Portress, and I'm here with... Matt Smith. All right, we have a we have a very interesting show today. Uh, we're going to do a little What You've Been Watching, and then we have a very interesting review for you today. Uh, we are going to be reviewing the documentary Room 237. It is kind of a... I think what we can call a conspiracy film, for lack of yeah, a better term. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Basically, it's just it's a documentary about the inner workings of what was going on in, Steve, er, in Stanley Kubrick's mind. Well, according to four wacky people, so take that for what you will. But uh, yeah, we're going to be doing that, and uh, I think we're going to talk about a whole bunch of other stuff uh, that has to do with uh, you know inter- interpretation and interpretation of movies and what the hell that even means. So uh, we're going to take a quick break, and uh, we are going to come back with a little bit of what you've been watching. Stay tuned, everybody. We are going to do a little bit of what you've been watching. I've got a pretty decent list. Uh, Matt, what have you been watching, though? We'll start with you. Oh, shit. So, uh, oh, hold on. Let's start over. I forgot to pot you up. Go ahead. <laughs> so I've got a couple of things that I uh, watched this week. The first was uh, this kind of crazy horror comedy called Excision. Um, it's pretty gory and weird and whacked out about a loser kid who... Uh, wants to fit in with the social elite at her school and uh, dreams of being a surgeon. Um, Cutting for uh, the very first time. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. No, it's, it is kind of like that in the weirdness. Um, I, I don't actually know what I made of that movie yet. I just watched it yesterday and uh, it, it was, it was interesting. I say, give it a check, uh, check it out. If that, if that makes sense, check it out. Not give it a check. I don't know what the hell that means. Check out <laughs> give, this movie. Excision. Give it a it was check weird like and, it was in okay. middle school. Um, and what was interesting about it to me as well, though, is that uh, it, it stars Annalyn McCord, who people will know from like Nip Tuck and a couple of other shows. Um, and I've never really cared about her before. She always plays like this fixin' type character. But um, here she does the Charlie's Theron uh, monster thing and dirties herself up a little bit and uh, she's actually really good and so check that out um, also uh, I watched again this week uh, for the umpteenth time Network the Sidney Lumet film can't go uh, wrong there if, no you can't and uh, if if anyone out there has not seen this movie just uh, like stop just pause this podcast even and go and watch Network um, it's an amazing film 
uh, with an amazing, perfect screenplay by uh, Patty Chayefsky. Um, He won the Academy Award for it. Peter Finch won Best Actor for uh, playing Howard Beale. And it's this crazy uh, media conspiracy sort of movie that's just really interesting. Uh, It's kind of thematically similar to uh, Face in the Crowd, the Elia Kazan uh, film with Andy Griffith. Um, Both of these movies have kind of been invoked as having parallels with – like the careers of somebody like Glenn Beck, um, who just is this charismatic media mogul who gets uh, through the roof ratings and just skyrockets in popularity and can get people to do basically whatever he wants them to do through the power of television. Right. Um, so those are the two things that I've been watching this week um, and that I want other people to check out, I guess. So. All right. Well, uh, I've got a couple. Um, most recently I saw – a, uh, I saw the movie that was getting a lot of buzz uh, last year, and uh, of course, in true Weinstein fashion, it was uh, there. There was some there was some controversy over a rating uh, for uh, the documentary Bully. Uh, now I don't want to get too much into it, but uh, as as the movie goes, it's okay. It's not great by any means. Uh, I think. Basically, it just shows you know victims of being bullied, and I think that's where the movie falls short. Is that it doesn't really get to the crux as to why these things happen. You know, mm-hmm. never once do we talk to an actual bully, or do we talk to the parents of a bully. And the only thing that really kind of shines more than anything is they show a couple of administrators who are just wholly inept, and just they don't fucking know what they're doing with kids. They have no idea. I mean, there's a scene where, uh, you know, one kid, where the bully kid and uh, the kid that's being bullied, you know, I guess they were like coming in from lunch or whatever. And, you know, they, she makes them shake hands and the bully like puts out his hand really quick. You know, he's like, he's ready to apologize. He's ready to get things done. And the other kid's just like, I'm not fucking shaking his hand. I'm not doing that. And she's like, well, he's wanting to apologize. It's all over. He's just, it's like, lady, you don't know what the hell you're doing. He's getting the easy out so he can just go on being an asshole again. But, but that, that's where it doesn't. It doesn't go anywhere. It just kind of shows these kids that are in these unfortunate situations. There's, you know, you know, obviously like the weird kid and uh, uh, the gay chick that's at a school, and then, you know, but I think that we were all bullied to some extent when we were kids. You know, I I, I don't know many people that weren't for one reason or another, uh, but like one little kid says in the movie, um, his little like eleven year old friend killed himself. Fucking tragic, right? But his little friend said, uh, you know, people used to do this to me all the time. People used to pick on me. Then, you know, I went basically went nuts on him one day. And now none of those kids fuck with him anymore. Those kids just kind of walk away. They're not they're like, oh, he's, there's another kid. There's another kid. You know, I'm just some other kid to them. And I'm like, well, this kid gets it. But a lot of it, you know, for me is you see parents that don't really know how to communicate with their kids or teach their kids how to communicate or befriend other people. It's just – I don't want to get too political. I'm not saying that, you know, I'm no one should be, you know, fucking harassed or anything like that. I'm not giving I'm not saying anything like that, but I'm saying, you know, a good amount of chiding. That's how kids learn to grow up and deal with shit. But, you know, it shouldn't get to a, you know, obviously a physical abuse is, you know, shouldn't be tolerated or anything like that. But, you know, I'm not saying that there are answers out there, but this movie doesn't even start to provide an idea of what could be an answer for something. They just kind of just go isn't this awful? It's like, yeah, it's awful, but uh, what are we going to do about it? No one fucking knows. Um, so that's Bully. Uh, should it have got an R rating? I don't fucking care. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> Who gives it's a It's usually shit? irrelevant anyway. It's so irrelevant that it's ridiculous. Uh, I also watched a movie on uh, the mention uh, that Doug Stanhope said. He stopped like 30 minutes into it and said, I usually don't do this 30 minutes in, but I'm recommending everybody go out and watch this uh, documentary called uh, Kumare. It's about a uh, an Indian guy who basically uh, decides he wants to become this guru and see if he can from you know more or less confuse people into believing that you know he is this kind of you know yoga instructor uh, yogi kind of guru type guy and he develops this following and it's really interesting um Overall, it's it's not great because at the end he finally you know has to confront these people and let them know that he has 
kind of been punking them the entire time. I think kind of like a low-level bow rat, but, you know, it means a little something. He starts buying into his own stuff a little bit, and uh, overall, it's an okay movie. It's not a fantastic movie, but if you want to see something on, uh, for for what I really think is just a lot of white people really trying to... uh, uh, just channel Eastern philosophy and things like that. That's what, because that that's what the whole movie really seemed to me is just like sad white people, you know, reaching out and just going. I, there, there's this brown man telling me some mystical things, and it seems he's like he's credible because he talks funny, he wears a robe, and you know this guy's from uh, Jersey. But uh, <laughs> it, it's an okay, it's an okay movie. Uh, if you got you know hour and a half or whatever to kill, I, I'm not going to go so far as to say it's fantastic, but you know, sorry. Uh, I've also been watching, uh, let's see, I watched Carnival of Souls recently. Enjoyed that. Uh, if you haven't seen Carnival of Souls, it's uh, it's on Hulu Plus right now for freezies, uh, if you have that. Well, I say for free, but if you, you know, paid eight bucks. Oh, my goodness, what else? Um, Doctor Who? Been watching Doctor Who? I don't know. I, uh, can we, go ahead. Can we back up to Carnival of Souls for just a minute? Sure. It's, uh, that that movie is pretty fascinating. Um, one, I like it's it's actually creepy for one, which is uh, something that older horror movies sometimes uh, like lose um, in current viewing. But also, that movie has an interesting uh, kind of history. Um, it was shot not by anyone with like Hollywood production background at all. They were all. Um, it was this group of industrial filmmakers who mm-hmm. shot that film, um, which is pretty interesting because it's like a successful imitation of Hollywood put on by absolutely like the opposite of Hollywood style production at the time. Um, these guys were making like instructional videos for like factory workers and stuff like that. So uh, it's, it's an interesting artifact in that regard as well. And I actually really like Carnival of Souls and um, the criterion transfer of that. If uh, anybody's just seen like a crappy dupe that, you know, like they used to sell in the VHS section of the local supermarket uh, back in the uh, early 90s, um, you should seek out the Hulu transfer of that film and see it. Yeah, absolutely. The, the transfer is fantastic. The audio is, is spotty, but I, that, that's just that's due to, I think, just low production value of that yeah. particular time. Especially like right in the beginning, a uh, lot of really yeah, heavy, I think it's heavy the, ADR stuff. But I think that's just indicative of you know budget and time. Yeah, I and, think that's the I think that's the production itself, as well as some some probably uh, some, given its history as an industrial artifact and not a, a studio film, some uh, deterioration probably on some work materials that they had to go for during the restoration. Yeah, it didn't probably keep everything quite up to snuff. Uh yeah so yeah that's Carnival of Souls please check that out right now uh for, for for as old as it is like you said it's very creepy uh some great cinematography when she's uh just driving past the uh little uh carnival type thing there for the first time and you know the reflections in the window done really really well oh goodness what else uh, I watched Hick recently uh the uh Chloe uh Moretz movie um it's fair. It's there's nothing great about it. It's like at first you think, oh, this is going to be kind of like sort of a a very exploitation of a minor kind of uh, Lolita esque sort of deal. But the big problem is, is that like you know after the first ten minutes they don't really commit to that. So it's like if you want to see something that's like lewd and lascivious, it's like which they hint at. They certainly hinted that in the trailer. There's not that much of it in there. And uh, so it's like they don't commit. It seems like somebody that was just like, we're going to go out and we're going to make this thing. It's going to be daring. It's going to be risky. And then after, you know, like two days of filming, they were like, I don't know if we can really do that. Let's let's not do that. Let's let's go another route. Uh, It's got the kid from uh, I can't remember the guy's name right off the top of my head, but uh, from uh, Les Mis. He's pretty good in it. And the creepy rapist guy, when I tweeted out on Get Glue that I was actually watching it, he followed me on Twitter, which I thought was the scariest thing ever i'm like oh this the the, the crazed rapist that they uh kick the shit out okay <laughs> he's following me on twitter now don't know what that means a little weird but you know be that as it may uh i think that's about it for me uh i think we went through most of that. i saw taken two finally was not very taken with taken two huh hmm? yeah i ah, forget it uh no it's no, i'm with you i 
it's it's more of the same, and that's okay. I, I wasn't like bored by it or anything like that. But I yeah, was. That, I was sadly bored by it. I love the first movie, and I just you know, I mean, and I watched the unrated yeah, all stuff, but I was just like something about it was just like I don't know. It's kind of yawn. It was, it was like been there, done that kind of that, vibe. Yeah, it it was it was the uh, it it suffered from the same problem as Transporter Two, yeah. and Transporter Three, like whatever. I don't, I don't think I ever saw three. So, Probably for the best. <laughs> All right, that is. What, I think it's better than two, but that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, well. Didn't it was did Louis Leterrier do all three or did he just do one and two? Um, I'm actually not certain that he did the second one even. Um, I thought he just did one. I could be wrong. The I know that the or is that the guy who did the, two and three did this did Taken two? I fucking I, my brain. Yeah, hurt. yeah. I know that the um, I know that the third one was directed by Olivia Megaton. Who directed Taken Two, I believe. Okay. Um, but Transporter Two may have actually been the guy that directed Taken. Um, it's one of those things that, that it's almost it's a very uh, all of um, all Luke Besson's things are very incestuous. <laughs> they all just kind of go around, and everybody kind of gets their turn at it. He's almost kind of like I w- would you say he's like a European? I mean, not, not obviously. I'm making a weird kind of juxtaposition here but would you, as far as like how he kind of treats things in a way when you say he's kind of like a modern day uh european roger corman in a way kind of everybody kind of yeah, gets their he, bat they get kind of obviously it's kind not of as makes low better budget. movies than that well, it's true <laughs> yeah it's, it's but, yeah no i think that's, but everybody just as far as like the structure goes and everything because that's how it was with a lot of corman stuff was that somebody would start kind of on the bottom it's like oh you want all right you're gonna be an assistant director now it's like okay now it's it, it was like oh, yeah. literally okay it's your turn to do this and so it seems like there's a lot of a yeah. lot of that with uh a, a lot of um a lot of basson stuff yeah, so uh, just just for clarity, though, um, before we move on, uh, the first two transporters were military. Oh, I thought so. I thought so. There you go. Well, you know, you don't get them right most of the time, but every once in a while, you swing and hit one. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, when it matters. When it matters. <laughs> when it matters, kids. What you got to do is you got to step back. You got to look down the plate and just go, I got this one. Louis Leterrier did that shit. <laughs> What? what? Crickets? Okay, fine. All right, everybody. That is it for our... uh, That's a little high, isn't it? Anyways, (laughs) that is what we've been watching, and uh, we're going to take a little break here, and we are going to come back with our review of Room 237. When you get the blues a little shoe shine boy, he never gets low down, but he's got the dirtiest job in town. Bending low at the people's feet on a windy corner of a dirty street. Will I ask him while he shine my shoes? How to keep from getting the blues? He grinned as he raised his little head, he popped his shoe shine ragging, and he said, Get rhythm. When you get the blues, come on, get rhythm. When you get the blues, a jumpy rhythm makes you feel so fine. It'll shake all your trouble from your worried mind. Get a rhythm when you get the blues. Okay, we are now going to review Room 237. Uh, but we're going to do a little bit more than just review this. We're going we're gonna to talk about several different things. Um, First of all, well, I'd like to play you a trailer, but the trailer that there was a trailer at one point that did have, you know, some snippets from the audio of the movie, but uh, that's, I I can't find it anymore. And, uh, but the trailer that they have now is all just kind of rolling like, it's an amazing film, the blah, blah, blah. It was accepted to 8 billion fucking festivals and who cares? Um, So we're not going to play that for you. But let's let's start here before we get down. Right, let's let's talk about what the movie is itself. Uh, basically, it's four or five people talking about you know what they believe the hidden meanings behind Stanley Kubrick's The Shining are. And notice I say Stanley Kubrick's The Shining because that's completely different from Stanley or from uh, Stephen King's The Shining. And uh, we'll probably get into a little bit of that as well. But let's start here. 
Matt, what are your thoughts of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining? Um, I've always liked it, but I've uh, never been a huge fan. Um, there's part of me that agrees with Stephen King when uh, Stephen King says Stanley Kubrick doesn't know how to make a horror film. Hmm. Um, and I, I think that's right, I, although I also concede that perhaps The Shining is not a horror film in the vein that uh, f- Stephen King or fans of the novel would think of a horror film as. So I think I think it's its own little beast, which is interesting. It actually uh, holds up well within the Kubrick filmography. Yeah, basically when I was... Uh... I, I want to say I was probably uh, somewhere in high school when I saw um, The Shining for the first time, and and I enjoyed it then. But it's it's almost upon every subsequent view of The Shining that I'm like I don't actually particularly care for this movie. Um, I don't think it's an awful movie by any stretch of the imagination, but I, I don't think it's a great movie either. Unlike say, <laughs> uh, just a quick diversion, uh, Natural Born Killers. I think Natural Born Killers is an amazingly great and awful movie at the exact same time. Uh, yes. This, unfortunately, doesn't quite do that for me. And like I said, every subsequent viewing is kind of, it's worse and worse for me. I mean, all of a sudden it's like, oh, now I can really hear how the score is just so over the top and just pounding you all the time and never giving you a second to actually think for yourself or feel any particular emotion that's going on in the scene at the time. It's telling you this is what you're supposed to be feeling. You should be thinking this right now. Here's what your emotional state should be. And, like, that's annoying. I think some of the Steadicam work is fantastic in it, but then there are other shots that are like, what the fuck are we doing here? makes no sense to me what any of these shots are made up to be. I, I, I'm, I'm confused. I think Jack Nicholson's performance is, is not great. I mean, there's, a, there's a couple of shining moments, no pun intended, um, where he, he goes berserk. Like his most mad is, is, is when he's you know, at the top of his game. But the horrible part of all of it is how he's just fucking weird from frame one. He doesn't go yeah. on this journey from normal dad to, you know, crazed psycho for whatever reason that you might want to interpret that he's become said psycho. Um, but that's in, and Nicholson himself has said that this is some of the, uh, it's some of the word, like they took all of the bad takes according to him. He's like Stanley printed all the horrible takes and all the takes that he liked that he took that, you know, he did, he left on the cutting room floor. And I don't know that I 100% believe that, but who knows? Kubrick, you know, was notorious for taking a billion, you know, a billion takes on, you know, every single setup or whatever, and especially just tormenting the shit out of, uh, out of, uh, Shelley Duvall. But yeah. who I actually really like her performance. That <laughs> I know that that's a minority uh, view. Oh, but certainly. I, I actually, I actually really think she's terrific in this film. Um, she definitely goes full on like like super vulnerable uh withering uh female but i actually like really like her performance in this movie as wendy which uh, uh, you know with the actual book itself it was a complete opposite reaction of to what the wendy character was in the uh in the stephen king book she was actually kind of more of a blonde cheerleader type who was a bit more you know strong-willed about things she wasn't that cowering little oh hi, hi. Right. <laughs> some of her lines are fucking you just can't help but laugh it's like hey doc you want to go out to the fucking oh boy anyways <laughs> all right so basically there's been a lot of interpretations as to you know what the shining is and just on on a surface level as a as a movie not even counting the actual you know what we're going to get into with the room 237 documentary uh but just as to you know why does um uh jack i i, I keep forgetting that you know it's like tony danza it's actually named after it's it's the same name but why why Jack goes crazy? Is it these demons in here? Has he resurfaced as an alcoholic? So there's many er- interpretations. Is Danny actually doing this to him? By the way, we're gonna, just going to go ahead and assume everybody has seen The Shining when we do this review. I should have said that right off the top. So 
you know, if you haven't seen The Shining and you're listening to this, I'm very, very confused as to why you would listen to us talk about a thing that's going to be talking about <laughs> the actual uh, deconstruction of The Shining. So stop it. Go watch The Shining. Come back. Or go watch The Shining. Go watch two th- Room 237 and come back. So, you know, take about two, three days off to come back to the podcast and figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> We're, we're asking for you to spend a lot of your time Spend doing a lot this of your time us. or just keep listening. Who cares? But, uh, yeah, so there's a lot of interpretations as to, you know, what was going on in the story to begin with. So when you really break it down to, as to, you know, supposedly what Stanley Kubrick truly meant within his um, uh, directing of, of this version of The Shining, that's when you get into some really weird territory. Uh, let's let's talk about the movie as a whole first, yeah. though. And the, go ahead. These guys go, these guys go nuts with it. Um, and uh, it, it's, I don't know. Some of it's actually like pretty viable readings and interpretations, and other things are just uh, completely batshit. Yeah, there are a couple of I moments. Have, like, I have no idea. There are a couple of moments when you're just like, yeah, oh a couple yeah, moments yeah, that I could get you're that. just like, what the fuck. That seems that seems credible, and then you're like, okay, buddy, you're stretching. Come on, that's what you're saying. But the movie itself is actually. Yeah, I mean, go ahead. I, like honestly, the I think the craziest one. Uh, well, I, how do you want to get into this? Well, let's let's let's, let's talk about we, the format of the film first, because that's yeah, it's very different from any for most documentaries that you're probably going to see. Most uh, your standard documentary would be we're going to show you here are our players. Uh, and they're going to be talking about stuff, and then we'll just cut away to things. That is not the way Room 237 uh, operates. They actually originally thought 230, Room 237 would never actually see the light of day because there is so much copywritten material in here that they don't exactly have the uh, the permission to use. I, I haven't delved into a, a lot of the legal things as to how and why they can actually get away with what they're doing. But you never actually see the interviewees on camera. We only – it's all narrated through uh, sh- uh, things from Kubrick movies, I mean from Eyes Wide Shut to, you know, to non-Kubrick movies like All the President's Men and you, know, you name it. Basically, it's just kind of taking things that are around and showing you some sort of narrative uh, you know, about what these people are talking about. You know, a guy describes, you know, going to the movie theater and you see like a shot from a, you know, a movie theater. And you don't you never see these people. So, which I think I'm not sure if I like it or I hate it because I think in a way if you saw these people perhaps it would they would just become instantly uh, you know, uncredible. <laughs> He's just looking it's like, "Really? This guy's the one who's telling <laughs> us this? Okay, let's check out right now." And maybe that's what they, you know, might have thought with it. And I think, you know, there's one gentleman in in the movie who's who's laughing constantly, and he laughs in the way that only stoners laugh. You know which guy I'm talking about, right? Yeah, it's the it's the guy who was a projectionist, right? I think so. He's just. <laughs> I think I think it's that guy. Every everything is just like. <laughs> there's always this kind of just like really down and out, like weird stoner laugh. And he mentions that he has a kid at some point. So I'm just like, oh shit, this. Yeah. So someone called Child Protective Services. This man is on drugs a lot. <laughs> he just he just sits, <laughs> smokes weed, and watches The Shining. I know this is a weird indictment, and I, I, there's I have no evidence of this whatsoever, other than his weird fucking laugh. But uh, okay, yeah. So that's basically how it, how it goes. We get introduced to these people, and then they talk about the movie, and we kind of see what they're uh, what they're talking about. We don't have too many outside things, other than there's a stray shot here or there that they composed just for the film, and then there's graphics of uh, different maps and stuff because there are theories as to um, you know where things went and you know characters and their plots within walking or you know anything within yep. the house itself. Which is uh, is interesting, and yet at the same time you're like, who cares? Well, so so before we get into them, right? This is kind of what I want to talk about. Um, so they're not all these like crazy conspiracy theories, right? Like a couple of them are just kind of here are some puzzles that happen in this movie, and that we can see how they play out, right? Um, now there is uh, there's actually precedents. Uh, for this, uh, there's an entire wing of film studies devoted to the study of Alfred Hitchcock. 
And within the Alfred Hitchcock uh, studies area, there's an even crazier wing of people that um, write these really intricate and detailed and amazingly composed and intriguing essays about uh, just the crazy shit that you can figure out by watching a Hitchcock film. Um, and I, I want to, before we get into the conspiracy theories and the puzzle theories that uh, Room 237 sets out, uh, I just want to read you a, a, like an excerpt uh, from uh, D.A. Miller's, uh, who's actually a really uh, highly regarded film and media studies scholar. Mm-hmm. Um, he has this essay called Hitchcock's Hidden Pictures. And it starts out with him talking about how he was watching Strangers on a Train half asleep at 2 a.m. and uh, on television. And he noticed some (laughs) and he noticed some like just some weird things. Right. Mm -hmm. So he starts out by talking about the um, the Hitchcock cameo in the film. Um, And so here's how he does. it. He goes, uh. No sooner does Hitchcock come forward onto the platform than every theatrical audience all over the world emits the pleased purrs, the complacent chuckles of its recognition. The communal gloating is as definitive of the cameo as is Hitchcock's own flesh and blood. Even so, it remains a somewhat puzzling response. To judge by our swollen heads, one would suppose that Hitchcock had been trying to escape our attention rather than call it to a convention of his own devising. One would also suppose that many people in the audience, less clever than ourselves, fail to notice his appearance, even though, barring infants and aliens, such ignorant spectators are hard to come by. This appearance is no secret, no obscure reference for an elite mass culture spectators. We read only what has been made legible for that purpose, and yet we all feel as pleased as a child who has just discovered a hidden picture and as knowing as the cinephile who's watching Elaine Renee's last year at Marion Bad and smiles to himself when he, det- when he detects Hitchcock hovering in midair among the hotel guests. And so he goes on, uh, like, just writing actually really eloquently about this uh, cameo appearance uh, before he gets to uh, the first meeting between Bruno and Guy in Strangers on a Train. And he notices something really weird here. Um, so, let's see. Out of the womb of suspense, narrative is at last unmistakably delivered, healthy and full of beans, and after our drawn-out wait, we are the more pleasurably intrigued. The film is laying track. We are unlikely, therefore, to pay attention to a small detail that emerges at the very moment when the suddenly upraised camera gives Guy and Bruno their first full registration. This is a book that Guy is holding, his train reading. On its back cover is the face of Alfred Hitchcock who is thus visible, if not actually seen. There's no doubt about it, we get several more views of this book. It's Alfred Hitchcock's Fireside Book of Suspense, a 1947 collection of mystery uh, stories that Hitchcock edited, annotated, and prefaced with an essay called The Quality of Suspense. What this leads D.A. Miller to start doing is read into Hitchcock too closely. Hmm. And he starts to notice all of these things that make him really paranoid about noticing them um, and, and causes him to... Does he kill himself like, in the middle of his writing? No, he just goes, but, oh my God, I know too much. And then, so, so he takes this and it becomes this whole thing of like, okay, so if people recognize that this is Alfred Hitchcock, like, like, like if, the, if, if the people in the movie do not recognize Hitchcock when he gets on the train with his giant contrabass... Uh, instrument that he's carrying and they don't recognize that that's Alfred Hitchcock. Why do they not recognize that it's Alfred Hitchcock? Because based on this book and based on all this other evidence, this is a world that clearly within which Alfred Hitchcock is Alfred Hitchcock. So why is that weird? And then he just goes on and finds all these other puzzles that pop up throughout uh, Hitchcock and like uh, using uh, pictures of Hitchcock and other Hitchcock films. And it's really fascinating but I just want to point out this is not without precedence what's going on in room 237. It's just these people are not even uh, like they don't they are completely unfettered. They have no ties to like having to be respectable whatsoever. <laughs> right. Um, and acknowledge their craziness. They're just like, yeah, this is what it is and this is it. 
And and that is that is one of the weird things about this, and you really don't get any particular uh, knowledge as to where these people come from. You're going to have to do a little bit of that research yourself, and I'll, I'll be frank with everybody right now. I didn't do any of that. Uh, no. <laughs> but uh, one, one says he's a professor of history. Yeah, yeah there, there you go. Yeah, so you know, you teach something. Oh, yeah, because uh, there's one guy – like uh, there's one guy who believes – that it's the um, Holocaust. yeah, it, it's it, this whole thing is an allegory for the Holocaust, and there's another that believes that is all the um, uh, basically the, an allegory for the uh, slaughtering of the Native Americans. I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna play a little part from it, and uh, just to kind of give a little idea for those of you who haven't seen it, and if you haven't seen it, it's available on uh, video on demand right now, uh, in Amazon and VOD and iTunes and a whole uh, bunch of stuff. So I'm gonna play a little bit of it so you can. Uh, Hopefully, get a little bit of a taste as to you know what these what these people are and what their I, I don't want to say psychosis is like, but because that that that's a little you know a little jerky, but <laughs> just kind of what you're in store for. So uh, here, here's a little piece from the movie. The back left seat. What was that? What was that? What was it? What was it? What was it? And I think my visual imagination looked at that Calumet baking powder can, the one right behind Halloran's head when he's talking to Danny. I knew what Calumet meant. It meant peace pipe. And I thought to myself, peace pipe, Indians. Oh my goodness, they're all over the place in that movie. suddenly said to my friends, that movie was about the genocide of the American Indians. And they said, what are you talking about? And I started explaining it, because I'd noticed the, the Calumet baking soda can in the first, the first time we see one, it's a single baking powder can straight on, and you can see the whole word Calumet. So there's no duplicity, like the little girls represent later. This is an honest treaty, an honest peace pipe between them. The other time we see the Calumet baking powder cans is when they're very carefully placed behind Jack Nicholson's head when he's talking to Grady. Need to rub it in, Mr. Grady. I'll deal with that situation as soon as I get out of here. There's about six or seven of them stacked up and they're all turned different ways and you can't read any one of them completely. It's, I've always interpreted those as being broken dishonest peace pipe treaties they're not they're these two guys grady and and jack are not being honest with each other grady is trying to get jack to go kill his family and commit genocide in the larger sense of the movie you know i mean kubrick often in many of his movies um he will end them with a puzzle so that he forces you to go out of the theater saying what was that about and he would put things in the scenes that that he knows will be among other things like confirmers when people start to try to figure out what the movie's about and we know he took this kind of care um there's a photograph in one of the books that actually shows kubrick carefully arranging objects on the shelves in that dry good room i i thought afterwards how did how come i saw this and a lot of other people didn't and i've, I've thought about it well, basically, you know, and and that's there's a lot of that kind of stuff in the, in this movie is just this kind of theorizing based upon you know I don't want to say little to no evidence because in many cases you know some of this is really well thought out even if it is insane and in, in yes. a way you almost have to kind of you have to you have to admire that even if you're you know someone's completely off their rocker that they've thought things out so well that it's like well you know that is a theory i don't know if it's right but it's it's certainly an an interesting theory yeah it's um i think that they play around with uh the visual information enough the the people who made the documentary um that you can actually get a sense of what these people are seeing, even when it's crazy stuff like, hey, that's not a poster of a skier, that's a minotaur. Yeah. You know? um, like, they they will present you with what that person is looking at. I, and I like that because you can see that even though they're 
presenting these wild, perhaps wildish, uh, wild and outlandish uh, theories about what the film is doing, they're at least basing them on something that they've noticed in their own too close reading of the film, right? This is, these are obsessives uh, at some point, and uh, this is kind of just what they think the film is about. They're not film scholars. They're not media critics. Uh, some of them definitively tell you that this is what the film is doing. Some of them are like, yeah, this is just some cool stuff I noticed, but yeah. The nice part about it is at the same time is that the film never says, aren't these people weird? Aren't they crazy? Aren't they wacky? Everything that they say is treated as if it is a very viable look into what the film is. And while you as a viewer may sit back and go, you're 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 nuts. You're absolutely out of your mind. You can still you, you. It's still being shown to you in such a serious manner that you're like you know. It, at least it's presented as something that could be a possibility, and not hey, look at us joking on these idiots who've read way too much into you know what could be a simple film. Yeah, uh, to to quote um, Owen Gleiberman of Entertainment. Weekly, who gave the movie an A rating, uh, by the way, he uh, he says that uh, Room 237 makes perfect sense of The Shining because even more than The Shining itself, it places you right inside the logic of how an insane person thinks. That's, you know, from I wouldn't expect something so intelligent from someone from Entertainment Weekly. Well, Owen, Owen Gleiberman. That's right, there. Entertainment Weekly. I'm taking a stab right. at you. <laughs> Is it's it, the rest of their magazine that I read every week. It's garbage, but the movie reviews are good. That's true. Does is is uh, is Lisa Swartzbaum? Is that is that does she work for them? Or she is, just retired. Oh, did she? Thank yeah, God. She she yeah. just retired from Entertainment Weekly. She she was yeah. She was very hit or miss. Sometimes it was just like okay, I, you're right on. And then sometimes it's like you're you're just a st- stupid old lady. <laughs> That's like kind of an asshole thing to say, but you know, let's. Uh, Let's talk about a couple of the other interesting things. Um, like just well, number one, there's like there's there's some, like you have the credible things like the Calumet baking powder and things like that that you could just go maybe that's the thing. Then there's a couple of things that are stretching, like when uh, Jack goes in and interviews for the for the first time and he's and he's meeting uh, I forget the cat's name that uh, runs the joint. Uh, when they're walking in, their hands meet at the exact same time. He's kind of leaning over a desk, and there's a paper tray <laughs> on the desk. And this guy goes, watch through frame by frame. When their hands finally hit, the guy, the 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 interviewer, uh, the, there's a letter tray that's sitting on the desk. The letter tray becomes a full-on hard-on. So it's like it it almost that just almost borders it's on too juvenile. Close. Yeah, it's too close. And you're, you're, like, you're at that point you're too into the film for your own good but you know so what <laughs> and then there's another one that um where I, I i can't remember if it's the same guy or not actually claims that uh you know well th- this part is true stanley kubrick did look at different subliminal messages within um we, we, you know there, there was a whole big thing especially you know like from the 70s and even on into the 80s and i think maybe a little bit into the 90s as well with subliminal advertising in, in you know print and television and things like that that you know supposedly you know sold sex and everything else like that would try to you know put right. hidden images and ice cubes and shit like that um so so that shit was true and Kubrick did look into things like that uh, from from what I've read but um you know he claims that there's a point right in the beginning where uh you know all the credits are uh, floating up to the top of the screen where Stanley Kubrick's name goes by, and this dude swears that when you look into the clouds for a frame or two, something like that, that you see an airbrushed picture of Stanley Kubrick in the clouds. He's like, you got a picture of Stanley Kubrick, what he looked like in the 70s, and they show you a picture of him just before they cut to these clouds. Now, Matt, I haven't gone to the Blu-ray, but I paused on this scene. I looked for, I swear to you, I did it as a well. good five minutes, and I'm like, I don't know what the fuck this guy's talking about. And, if, and you know what? If the filmmakers would have seen it, they would have highlighted it somewhere going, it looks like it's right about here. They didn't even attempt that because they like, they'll like kind of zoom into stuff that people are talking about and highlight it and look at that, look at this, look at that. This one, they're just like, this motherfucker's on his own. But I don't yeah, know. Yeah, they, they just leave it. It's just, 
Like, you <laughs> guess pretty, what that is. And there's different things from like sets, like looking different and, you know, like actual location versus, you know, uh, what it looked like on the, um, on the studio, on the, uh, Elstree studios in England. Yeah. And, it's, and it's just like, they fucked up. There, there's yeah, some certain of them things are, that seem them... to be con- just continuity errors and shit like that, that they're just going, yes. this has meaning. It's like, does it really? Does it really? Yeah. Some yeah. Sometimes uh, sometimes uh, a cigar is just a cigar. Exactly. Yeah. There's, but but then know, again, as George Carlin reminds us, sometimes a cigar is a big brown dick. <laughs> he will be so, missed. So, you know, who knows? Yeah, but that's the thing. It's like I think in a way, many times they almost give Kubrick a little bit too much credit. Because they're like, the chair's there, now the chair's not. This is Stanley Kubrick telling us, and you're like, maybe just the continuity yeah. guy you know, took took a nap on the job that day. I mean, it's possible. Well, I, I don't, it, and it, it's also possible that Kubrick meant it. But I will you tell know. you the only thing the only thing that absolutely annoyed me about this movie, because the rest of it, even as as crazy as some of it is, including the clouds, including the continuity errors, like it's one hundred percent compelling watching oh absolutely i've seen it i've I've watched it three times now but the only thing that pissed me off is there's one section where the guy talks about how uh barry linden is a boring movie and it's because stanley kubrick is so smart that he was bored making it and it's just like but barry linden is fucking great so what are you talking about right now Uh, Mm, (laughs) like i mean but it it just doesn't boring (laughs) but it's boring yeah, at times. It, it it's is so it's long. Also, but it's also boring in that way that most Stanley Kubrick movies can be boring. That's right? very I true. Mean, there's like a lot of uh, just like open space, um, very clean cinematography. And uh, yeah, I mean, just just this like – and it wasn't so much that he said that Barry Lyndon was boring because it, it is but not in a way that I find personally damning. Um, it's that – he credits this to Kubrick's being too smart for the material yeah. or too smart for uh, even The Shining is what it ultimately comes down to. It's like he wanted to find a way to make, make this movie not an adaptation of The Shining. In, in, uh, basically, according to this guy, it was kind of Kubrick's way of just going, look at how much smarter I am than all of you. I'm going to do some shit that you're not even going to fucking even come close to understanding because I'm just that much greater and smarter than you. And perhaps that's what he thought, but I, just, I don't know that he went to quite that extreme to you know kind of give us a big F you that you know, right. we're all dummies. Right. I want to play another little part. uh this part is about uh, the one, one of the continuity um, things, and this is one that you know. It is, I I only half believe this sometimes. Some of it's just like, yeah, I can see that, and then there's a part of me that's like, no, you're absolutely insane. So let's take a listen to uh, this uh, part about continuity in The Shining. And the bathroom, the open bathroom door across the hall, and his bedroom door. This is this is just a bit where um, Danny's kind of brushing his teeth uh, just just before he gets the the first vision. As you would expect, a kid's door has lots of cartoon characters on it, and the one who is most apparent because it's right at the edge of the door, and it's the largest one that you can see, and it's the last one you can see as the camera moves past it, is one of the seven dwarves, and it happens to be Dopey. Okay. Subsequently, after Danny has passed out, uh, Wendy and the pediatrician leave Danny's room. And as they do, they of course go out his door, and you again see the door, the open door with all the cartoon characters on it. And Dopey isn't there. Now, again, continuity error? I don't think so. I think what Kubrick is saying is that before, Danny had no idea about the world. And now, he knows. He's no longer a dope about things. He has been enlightened. <laughs> now, see, I, there, there's part of me that goes, you're an idiot. And there's another that's like, I don't know. Maybe. It's, right. And that's what's so fun about this movie is is being presented with these many things and going, either you're a genius or you're, you're an absolute moron. 
And I, I think that's what ultimately makes this documentary work and be, be very rewatchable. Yeah, I think I think you're right on. Um, I I don't want to go into too many of the theories uh, in depth. Yeah, because uh, it's 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 something that, that but, that's I, almost seem fun to, to watch. I want to right, and I want to leave the uh, really crazy one about the moon landing footage. Oh my goodness, it's um, so great. I, I want to leave that one for people to discover on them on their own um, because that that's some whacked out you're on serious drug shit. Um, but there's a small part so, yeah, of me that's think, just like who I think knows. Summing up, I, I, I think that this is probably a probably a must see movie if mm. you love movies. I don't care if you like The Shining. Um, it's kind of owed to being obsessed with film and the possibilities that that can lead to. Um, and, and I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was perfect, and I, I really can't wait to watch it again. I, I am uh, I'm in that exact same boat with you. I want to uh, I want to go through. Do you have any like crazy uh, things that you have come across that um, any theories about other films that that have made you just kind of go really what? Because I, I have uh, I have like, at least like one. other people's theories. Yeah. No, no, I haven't. I mean, other than the Hitchcock stuff, which I'm well, sort of well versed in, um, not really. I kind of went out looking today to see, you know, kind of what I could find, and I wanted to play a game where I, you know, gave you like three, three actual ones, and and one of them was fake, and I wanted you to see which one was fake. But really, coming <laughs> up with a fake one was so much harder than I could ever imagine. Uh, here's one that I particularly liked. Um, the theory is is that the movie Disney's Aladdin is uh, it's all uh, future theory. Uh, there's a scene in Aladdin where Genie calls Aladdin's clothes so third century. However, as we all know, the Genie was locked inside the lamp for the past 10,000 years, meaning that there's no way he could have known what the third century was like. This means that Aladdin actually takes place in the future in at least... Uh, <laughs> 10 3000 AD. The movie itself is set in a post-apocalyptic wasteland, one where only Arabic culture has survived. The things called magic are actually some of the most technological marvels left behind uh, by the previous civilization. These flying carpets and genetically enhanced parrots, which can comprehend human speech instead of just mimicking it. How else could the genie do impressions of ancient long-dead celebrities like Groucho Marx, Jack Nicholson, etc.? That's pretty intense and crazy. Um, and I can't say that it's... Maybe, I can't really tell you that that's the craziest thing I've ever read about a movie, but it's close. Then there's the one that, uh, you know, Ferris Bueller... It, it's called the Ferris Bueller Fight Club Theory, where... Mm -hmm. um, Ferris Bueller just, um, you know, he, Cameron, I guess, is a uh, figment of his imagination, I believe. I believe yep. that's the theory for that. Uh, you know, some other stuff as well. But, you know, that's what's fun. Oh, oh, I did like this one because it's one of my favorite movies of all time. But in the Back to the Future, Doc has is, 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 is suicidal. Because mm -hmm. if you remember the first scene, you know, he has he's uh, demonstrating the DeLorean for the first time. And he's driving the car by remote control. And he has right. him and Marty stand right in front of it. Now, at this point, Doc has had every single invention he's ever made be a flying piece of crap. And so, essentially, he's just he's betting on this. It's like, if this doesn't work, I'm going to die with this. Yeah. And it's a, that's an interesting theory. I don't, I, I don't, I mean, I thought, it, I, really, Zumeckis probably just wanted to make something look cool. And show you yeah. that, you know, it goes through time and will pass right through them. So... But it's an interesting theory to go with. So, yeah. All right. I, I, I don't want to... So, well, go ahead. before we go, do you know the, like, overarching television theory of, like, every show takes place within that, like, autistic child's head that's at the end of, is it Dallas that ends with the autistic child? I um, forget. In, in any case, whatever show that ends with, like, Timmy, the autistic child, it, like, the whole show's taken place within his subconscious, um... There's a theory that uh, posits that every television show in the history of television takes place within that child's mind. And uh, I don't want to get too in-depth, but the linchpin of that theory is Detective Munch. Hmm. Who, and all of the shows that he's appeared in as the same character. Um, 
he is the linchpin of this this theory. Go and look that up. It's it's absolutely fascinating, crazy reading, um, and there are several variations of it. But basically, uh, it all boils down to the same thing: crazy, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> bat shit crazy. I mean, what else? What else could it truly be? Right. All right. Well, that is it for us today, everybody. Um, that is our review of uh, Room Two Thirty Seven. Um, go out and watch it. I mean, there's there's pretty much nothing else to say other than that. But uh, that is the film find for this week. Kind of a short episode, but you know, I think packed full of information. This is one of our more scholarly shows for sure. Yeah, it was a good episode. I enjoyed this movie, and I like talking about it. So, uh, yeah. So, if you have any comments, or if you've seen Room Two Thirty Seven, and uh, you have any conspiracy theories of your own about that or any other movie. Uh, email us at thefilmfind at gmail.com. You can go to thefilmfind.com where you will find all the information about how to subscribe to us on iTunes, which you should be doing, and you should give us a review on iTunes. We'll send you some crap uh, if you're like the first person who does it. Um, and let's see, what else? Yeah, subscribe to us on iTunes and Facebook, Twitter, the whole nine yards. We have all that stuff. So, And uh, we have we have a big announcement coming up. Possible. There's not a hundred percent fact on this yet, but uh, for the film fine fans in the Charlotte area, we have something possibly coming down the pike that's just going to be super awesome and uh, a lot of fun. I can't wait to actually say this, but I'm not going to say anything until it's a hundred percent. But please stay tuned for that. And um, I feel like there's something else that I'm missing. Um, Yeah, that's it. That is it for us. And uh, maybe we'll throw some film fine fives in this week, but. uh, That is it for your film find this week. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Adam Portress for Matt Smith. We will see you next time, guys.
Don't waste my time. <laughs> I wish I could just do sound word shit all during this. Just, just kind you of... sick son of a bitch. I don't know. I can't do four things at once. <laughs> <laughs>